to Derek Hall for preaching while I was out. I know you were blessed and encouraged with his ministry and his preaching of the word. And I also want to say thank you for the birthday wishes. That was uh, incredibly special. When I, In fact, we were sleeping in Bethlehem, really in a little hole in the wall right behind the church of the nativity in a little area right there uh, where Jesus was born. And we spent two nights there, and one of those nights I was cheered uh, by watching your birthday wishes. So thank you very much for that. And it's good to be home. We met a lot of uh, people and uh, potential ministry opportunity for our church in the future, serving in ways that maybe none of us have ever considered uh, were happening there in that land. So please turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to continue our study through uh, 1 John together this morning. So this morning we're in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, under the heading, Do Not Love the World. Now, I've never met a young child who does not love bubbles. You know I'm talking about that little soapy uh, liquid that they always spill everywhere, right? You've, you've experienced that before. Uh, you, you put that little loop-shaped prong down into the soap and, and you pull it out. And it takes some time for those kids to learn how to do that just right and how hard and how fast to blow on that, those liquid, that bubbles. And, but eventually they get it, right? Or you get it for them and then they start to chase them and they always want to grab them and they come in different shapes and sizes. And sometimes if it's just right, it's glistening in the sun and it's... it's irresistible. You run after it and as soon as you grab it, sometimes it lands on your hand and then what happens? It pops. It doesn't last. But for the moment, it's irresistible. For the moment, it's something that we chase after. This morning, we're going to see that in many ways, the world is a lot like Bubbles. It's full of allurements. And it comes in all shapes and sizes. And it's very attractive and and very enticing. And sometimes we run after it. But as soon as we think we have it, what happens? It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. So we're going to look at these verses under three headings this morning. The command the description, and the conclusion. But would you stand with me as we read this passage together, 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The Apostle writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. Great God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can gather together as a church family, one in Christ, indwelled by your spirits. So we pray this morning you would give us understanding and you would refine us that we would love you. That we would not love the world. That we would pursue you. That we would not pursue the world. That we would seek after you with all that we are. And that we would abide forever because of the work of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, the apostle here ramps things up a little bit with his direct call to not love the world or to not love the things 
in the world. In fact, the verb that he uses for love here is a verb that's very familiar to you. A word that's very agape or agapao, right? It's this idea of seeking after with a prolonged, sacrificial, committed loyalty after something. And the fact that John uses the present tense in this verb tells us that he's talking about a disposition of the heart. He's saying, look, don't live in such a way that your heart is continually seeking after the world. Don't do it. Stay away from it. Don't live in a continual love affair with the world. Why? As we look here to the command, do not love the world, the first thing we see is this. Love for God and love for the world are mutually exclusive. Love for God and love for the world are mutually exclusive. Love of the world pushes out love for God. I mean, this is so serious that we need to make sure we understand exactly what the apostle is prohibiting here. I mean, if love for the world pushes out a love for God, we need to understand what is he talking about? I mean, is he telling us that we can't enjoy life? Is he telling us that we can't enjoy going on vacations? Is he telling us that we can't have nice things? Is he saying you can't live in a nice house or you can't drive a new car or you can't wear nice clothing? Is he saying you can't go to amusement parks? What is he saying, actually? Well, not exactly. He's not saying those things. But to know what he means, we need to understand what he means by the word, the word world. Cosmos here. Right, now, when the Bible uses this term, it uses it in one of three ways. So we're just going to look at the different ways that, that it is used in the New Testament. The first, cosmos, can refer to the created order. This is what we see in John chapter 1 and verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, John writes, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the cosmos or the world that is coming into what is the created order the whole of the created order the second way this word can be used is referring to humanity passage we all know very well john chapter 3 verse 16 for god so loved the world the cosmos that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life now jesus didn't die god did not give jesus to give jesus did not die on the cross so that Trees and animals could have eternal life. He's talking about the whole here of humanity. He's talking about human beings created in the image of God. And finally, and what John is clearly referring to here, cosmos can refer to the evil, organized, earthly system that is opposed to righteousness and controlled by Satan's power. Okay? By world, John means, John intends in this passage, and this is the third usage of this term in the New Testament, the evil organized earthly system that is opposed to righteousness and controlled by Satan's power. So the world then is this system that is opposed to God. It is this system that is opposed to righteousness. This is what the Apostle Paul referred to when he said, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to that which is opposed to God. Don't be conformed to this worldly system 
that values everything that is opposed to righteousness, that is opposed to truth. He's saying to love the world system that is opposed to truth, that is opposed to righteousness, has no place in the life of a follower of Jesus. Because you can't love God and love what God hates at the same time. You can't love God and love what God hates at the same time. It'd be like a judge who claims to love justice, right? The very fact that this person is a judge, it, it, we, we would assume that it means that this person loves justice. He wants to rule justly. He wants to rule righteously. So that judge who takes bribes and distorts and twists righteousness who lives in injustice, it, it doesn't go together. It doesn't happen. And the same is true. We can't love God and love what God hates. Can't love what opposes truth. Now, John is speaking of allegiances here. To love the world with its godless values and sinful ambitions is to be devoid of the love of God. That's what the apostle is telling us here. In fact, in verse 16, John is going to get more specific in helping us to understand what he means by the world. So he's going to help us to identify some common areas where we struggle, friends. We struggle. So let's look at the description. Verse 16, a picture of the world. What does he say? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. He says, you want to know what I'm talking about? You want to know what I mean when I say don't love the world? Well, listen, because here it is. It's the desires of the flesh. right? It's the cravings of sinful humanity. The cravings of sinful humanity. This is what A.W. Tozer calls the self-sins. Self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, self-advancement, self-gratification. Everything that revolves around me and putting me on the throne. Everything that has to do with emphasizing myself. Now, the desires of the flesh may refer to illegitimate desires. The desires of the flesh may refer to illegitimate desires. Things that are sinful in and of themselves. Or legitimate desires that are pursued in illegitimate ways. In other words, things that we need that aren't inherently wrong or evil, things that we want that aren't inherently wrong or evil, but ways that we pursue them in ways, in sinful ways or in illegitimate ways. So it can be illegitimate desires or it can be legitimate desires that are pursued in illegitimate ways. We see that? Okay, so oftentimes we associate this with physical lust, right? With sensuality. We'll take that for an example. Sex is a gift from God. And it's to be uh, confined to marriage between one man and one woman. And it is a blessing. It is a gift. It is, it is given. It is ordained. It is, it is from God. But what have sinful human beings done with this gift? We've twisted it. We've turned it. And we've taken what is legitimate and we've pursued it in illegitimate ways. We've turned it. This is the cravings of sinful man. But the sinful cravings of the flesh don't just refer to sensuality. As Danny Aiken points out, John would include anything and any way in which humans improperly fulfill fleshly desires, like overeating, 
or drunkenness. And friends, we could add other things to that. We could add exercise to that. Because sometimes we pursue what is good, right? Physical health, but we make it an idol. And it becomes all-consuming to us. So it's these desires of sinful man. So how do we know if this is a problem for us? So how do we know if we're struggling in this area? Well, the first thing I would say, and this is going to be true of all three of these things, is that all of us in this room are sinners. So to some extent, every single one of us in this room will struggle with these things. Every single one of us in this room will struggle with these things. Maybe not all of these things, but with this area in general, we will struggle. None of us are exempt from such temptations. So we should ask ourselves, what is it that I long for in life? What is it that I'm longing for in life? Are my longings God-centered? Are they Christ-centered? Are they kingdom-focused? Or are they me-focused? Are they about me? Is what I'm craving after inherently wrong and sinful? Or perhaps my craving is legitimate, but I am sinning in order to get it. Maybe what I want is okay, but the way I go about trying to attain what I'm craving after is sinful. Have I elevated it to a place in my life that it does not belong, making it an idol? These are questions we ought to ask ourselves. Because John says that if we love the world and the love of the Father, the love of God is not in us. So next... John focuses on the desires of the eyes. Just think about this. Every one of us is not, uh, is not beyond the temptation of living and seeing and desiring and coveting. Unchecked, this is the natural flow of our lives. We live, we see, we desire. And we covet. We want it. And it comes through the eyes. Commentator Colin Cruz writes, John is referring to sinful cravings which are activated by what people see. And this leads to covetousness. In that sense, friends, hear this, the desires of the eyes are connected to covetousness and greed. The desires of the eyes are connected to covetousness and greed. Now, metaphorically speaking, the eyes play an important role in our lives, right? Physically, we understand that, right? We need eyes. We want eyes. We want to see what's out there. But metaphorically, they're important as well. They play an important role. Jesus claims that our eyes can mislead us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 23, Jesus says, If your eyes are bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If your eyes are bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness, right? To have bad eyes means that we are full of darkness, that we are not led by the light of life, by the one who has come to enlighten all people, and we fail to walk in the light of wisdom. So when we live for ourselves, when we live away from the truth, when we forsake wisdom, when we set it on the the side burner and we don't live by it and walk in truth, then our eyes are bad because we're being led, and then what happens, we become full of darkness. We don't walk in the light of wisdom. And so often, 
our sinful eyes focus on ourselves, right? Back to the same thing, the sin of self, self-satisfaction, or this fascination with pleasure, this fascination with comfort, right? We see, we desire, we covet. Take, for instance, we see that high-level executive enjoying all the perks of life. You know, we think about all the benefits that person has and we begin to envy and covet. We want those vacations. We want that comfort. We want those conveniences. We see them. We desire them. We covet after them. Now, are those things wrong in and of themselves? Is it wrong to enjoy a nice vacation? No. Is it wrong to have comfort in life like air conditioning? No. Is it wrong to live in a nice house? No. Is it wrong to have a house cleaner even? No. The problem is when we focus all our energy on something other than Christ and live as if those some things are more important than Christ. That's the problem. That's the issue. So how do we know if this has become a problem for us? How do we know? Are we struggling with the the cravings or the desires of the eyes? How do we know? How do we examine ourselves? What questions do we ask of ourselves? Well, I think this is all about contentment. So we, we ask this, are we content with what God has provided for us? Or do we sense that God's provision is insufficient? Are we content with what God has provided for us? Or do we live as if God's provision is insufficient? When you look around you, when you are living and seeing, do you say, wow, look at all the stuff I don't have, and then you want it, you want to grab it, you want to seek after it? Or... Do you look all around you and then notice all the things you have and you thank God for what you have? And you recognize the blessing that he has granted to you. What is your perspective? Do you see all that you don't have and you lust after it? Or do you see all that you do have and you thank God for it? Now, with these first two descriptions that John gives us in verse 16, he's talking about aspirations, right? Things that we see that we want. He's talking about the things that we don't have, but we long to seek after, we long to get. But the third description refers to the things that we actually have, the pride in possessions. John's saying the the world is, is about pride in possessions, right? The things that we do have and seeking our hope in there. And here we say this, it's not so much about the things that we possess, but about what those possessions represent to us or what they mean to us. He's really pointing here to how we find our identity. He's really causing us to uh, examine ourselves, examine the things we have and ask ourselves, what makes us what we are? Is it just what we have? Or is there something else? Is there something more, uh, more natural, more in Christ than that? See, pride in possessions is sinful when our stuff determines our identity and values. Pride in possessions is sinful 
when it's our stuff that determines our identity and our value. Not saying it's wrong to have nice things, right? I hope you hear that over and over. I'm not saying it's wrong to have nice things. I'm not saying it's wrong to have nice clothes. I'm not saying it's wrong to live in a nice house. I'm not saying it's wrong to drive a nice car. I'm not saying any of those things. But what John is saying is this. If we find our identity in those things and build our lives on acquiring those things, then that's wrong. That's loving the world. And friends, we all know people who gauge their own worth or the worth of someone else on what they possess, on what they've accumulated, on what they have at their disposal. But Jesus is so clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Is not life more than the abundance of possessions? That's why this idea of showing favoritism and partiality is so ungodly. Because Jesus doesn't assess us based on what we have. He doesn't assess us based on our external appearance or our outward appearance. No, He looks to the heart. And that's what He calls us to do. Not to look at what's on the outside. Not to find identity or to find someone else's identity. Place their identity on what they possess. Now that's looking according to the world's view, not according to God's view. And friends, we need to remember that uh, everything we have has been given to us by God. There's no reason to boast. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, right? We have every reason to be humble before God. Because everything we have is ultimately a gift from God. So how do we know if the pride of possessions is a problem for us? Are we loving the world? Do we love the world? Do we live in a constant love affair with the world? And friends, none of us are beyond this temptation, okay? None of us are beyond this temptation. So how do we know? Well, perhaps the best way to know is to discern where you find your security in life and where you find your value in life. Where is your security found? Where is your value found? Where is your identity found? Here's what I mean. What are you most excited about in life? What motivates you the most? What do you fear the most? What is it that if you obtained that thing that you would feel accomplished? You would feel at ease. You would feel secure. You'd feel maybe even joyful. If you just had that one thing. To answer those questions, we often find in the answer to these questions. What do I spend my time doing? Why do I do what I do? What do I spend my money and my resources on? How much am I investing into the kingdom of God, to the things of God, to serve others, versus how much do I invest in acquiring things for myself? So when we find our identity and our security and our value in what we have, in our possessions, in that which we acquire, then we are loving the world. Again, it's not wrong to have nice things, but it is wrong to have nice things at the expense of investing in eternal things. 
if we're not going to invest in eternal things, if we're not going to find our hope in Christ and in the gospel, in the message of the gospel, in the proclamation of the gospel, in the sending forth of the gospel, in the building up of the kingdom of God, and we're really just focusing on building up our own kingdoms, then that's a battle against the pride of possessions, friends. Because we're more interested in ourselves than we are in the work of God. Friends, we can't say that we love God more than anything if our budget and our expense report says that we love ourselves more than anything. It doesn't go together. And not only that, if the stuff that we have is ultimately meant to serve our own ends and not God's ends, then what we have has become an idol. Let me say it again. If what we have or what we seek to acquire is ultimately to serve our own ends without a thought towards righteous ends and God's ends and the gospel ends, then what we have or what we're seeking after has become an idol. St. Augustine wrote, He loves thee, that is God, too little who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if we love anything other than God, or even that which we love, if we don't love it along with God for the sake of God, then that thing has become an idol for us. And that's wrong. All that we have, all that we would seek after should be subservient to God and seen through the lens of glorifying God. So John gives us this description in verse 16, but then he comes to this conclusion in verse 17. Let's read that again. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we see this conclusion, love God, not the world. Love God, not the world. Now the reason is clear, right? The world is passing away. Its pleasures are temporary. And they bring no lasting joy or hope. It's foolish to chase after the world. Why? Because its pleasures are temporary and it can bring no lasting joy. It can bring no lasting hope. Hugh Hefner's passing in recent weeks illustrates this well, doesn't it? The founder of Playboy, one of the people who was instrumental in the mainstreaming of pornography, lived for temporary pleasures. But what happened? It popped. It all crashes away. It goes away. It does not last. It crashes and it burns and there is an end to it. Now friends, the world is addicted to the laying up treasures on earth where moth will rust and destroy and thieves will break in and steal, Matthew chapter 6. There's no lasting satisfaction. There's no lasting hope. Jesus says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? He gains the whole world. He has anything he wants or she wants but forfeits his or her soul in the process, it doesn't last. Friends, it's just the picture of chasing the bubble with reckless abandon, isn't it? Going after with everything you can, reaching for it, grabbing for it, 
So driven to catch it that you'll run into danger just to get it. But the end is death. The end is empty. And John is calling us to love God, which is the opposite of loving the world. John calls us to love God and to do his will with reckless abandon. John is calling us to love God and to do his will with reckless abandon. And he says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. He could say has eternal life. Right now, don't miss this. There is a clear connection between doing the will of God and exercising faith in the Son of God. There is a clear connection between doing the will of God and exercising faith in the Son of God. Listen to what 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God have eternal life. Those who do the will of the Father abide forever. Let me say that again. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God have eternal life. And what we just read here, those who do the will of God abide forever. While faith and love are not the same thing, they are inseparable when it comes to salvation. Faith and love are inseparable when it comes to salvation. No one is saved apart from loving God. And we also see that doing the will goes hand in hand with loving God and believing the gospel. That's why we can say obedience matters. And that's why Jesus can say, recorded for us in John chapter 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So to love God, to love Jesus is to put faith in him. To genuinely love him is to put faith in him and to have faith in him and to love him is to follow after him, is to seek him with all that we are. Friends, love God, not the world. And while we can all agree that it would be foolish to chase bubbles into a busy street, if we're honest, that's how some of us are living our lives. It'd be foolish to chase a bubble off a cliff. But that's exactly how some of us are living our lives. Because we see it and we're enticed by it and we want it, so we run after it. But in the end, it vanishes. It doesn't last. We're like Schmeagle. We're like Schmeagle. Return of the king. They're going to throw that precious ring into the fire at Mordor. And what happens? Oh, I want that ring. So he runs and he chases it all the way into the lake of fire. All the way into the lake of fire. And friends, that's how some of us are living our lives. Running after the world with reckless abandon. And it will not last we'll find ourselves in the lake of fire. Instead, build your life on love for God and seek to do His will. It's only when we build our lives on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ that we will be satisfied forever. It's only through faith in the Son of God, the one who died for our sin. Faith in the one who chased not the bubbles of this world, but chased fully and completely the will of the Father who followed all the way to His death on a cross not for his own sin, but for our sin. It's only through faith in this one where there is eternal life, where there is hope. So the question is, do you know him? 
Do you know Him? Have you confessed your sin? Have you placed your hope in Him? In just a moment, we're going to transition to a time of invitation. And if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, if you have questions about eternal life, forgiveness of sin, baptism, please come talk to us now. If you have questions about what it means to repent, to turn from a love of the world, if you just need to spend time praying and asking God to reveal to you areas where your life is more characterized by love for the world than it is love for God, then do that, please. Perhaps you have questions about this church or membership. Come talk to us. We're praying for you. We've been praying for you. We're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to call sinners to himself and to build his church. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your great love. For your mercy that is unending. Lord, as the song says, we're undone by the mercy of Jesus. We're undone by your blessing, Lord. We're undone by the hope that we have in you. Not because we deserve it, because we don't. But because you have accomplished our salvation. God, give us a taste for you and not for this world. And God, give us grace and courage to turn from these lesser and counterfeit desires that will only lead to ruin and help us to pursue you with everything that we are. Give us courage to follow you and give us your spirit so that we may. In Jesus' name, amen.